What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Greg Olson, here to tell you about my new podcast, TE1. On the show, I had a chance to talk to my fellow tight ends who have revolutionized the position from an extra lineman to a dual-threat superstar. And just like my guests have changed the game, this year, NFLSundayTicket.tv is revolutionizing your NFL viewing experience. Stream all the live, out-of-market NFL games every Sunday on your favorite devices and never miss a moment from your favorite players. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use the promo code GREG88 at checkout and get 15% off your subscription. That's NFLSundayTicket.tv and the promo code GREG88. Subscribe to TE1 and get NFLSundayTicket.tv, an unmatched dual threat. Hello, Hardwood Knox family. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host, Dan Favalli, and we are still in the midst of the NBA playoffs. We have one first-round game left that will be happening shortly after we record this one as the Houston Rockets and Oklahoma City Thunder battle in Game 7 for the right to advance to the second round. Uh, the, other, the other teams in the second round are already set. We have two series already in progress. Um, so we're, we're going to be talking about all of it. Um, this is sort of a, a general, we're talking about the NBA playoffs episode um, without without as much structure as some of our, our previous episodes. So uh, we'll dive right in after a uh, shout out to our sponsors, as always, betonline.ag, DoorDash, and NFL Sunday Ticket. So Dan, how are you doing and what are you most excited about for Game 7 tonight? Um, I'm doing well over here. Thank you for asking. And I think I'm most excited for the the Twitter potential in a missed game seven, but also after it. I mean, just picture what the tweets will be like if Chris Paul ends up eliminating the team that traded him while treating him as the net negative asset in said deal. But also if the Rockets win, uh, I'm going to just be here for the probably the, the troll jobs done by both the Lakers and, and the Rockets fans. Uh, and then there'll, there'll probably also be some, you know, James Harden, like related to Chris Paul memes coming out. So, you know, I love that t- type of content. So I am very much looking forward to that. What about you? I was going to say, that doing? sounds like a very, that was a very Dan answer. Um, I'm I'm still, uh, I'm still riding high from the, the experience of the Nuggets jazz game seven. Uh, it was, it was a sloppy fatigue laden game, but it was a, uh, it was such an exciting finish. It was such a fantastic series. And above all else, like I, I just love how Jamal Murray in particular and, and Donovan Mitchell in particular handled themselves off the court throughout that series. The interviews that they gave were poignant and meaningful throughout. Um, Jamal Murray having the presence of mind and humanity to, to come and comfort Donovan Mitchell after he collapsed to the floor um, in, in despair after Mike Conley's three-point attempt rimmed out. Like that was that was just an incredible human moment, and it's just another example of how the league is in such a great place moving forward with these these young guys who are so good on the court and just to get it. Um, so I'm I'm still riding that high. 
that was a fantastic game. And sort of to that point, before I get into that, um, with, you know, you're talking about specifically Jamal Murray. Remember he gave that, uh, I called it an impossible interview after game six, and it was just borderline uncomfortable where I think it should have ended uh, after the, you know, he had said that the shoes he was wearing were, were giving him life. Um, but I do give him credit for what he was able to, to piece together in that moment. Uh, we're not talking about the strikes from last week. We elected not to record after uh, those games were canceled. I think there's enough white males commenting on all of this. And I would recommend just a couple podcasts to check out if people are interested in hearing more about that. Um, the Dishes and Dime podcast did a fantastic uh, segment on the the entire thing. Uh, I, I think it began around the 2145 mark on their latest episode. So I would go check that out. That's a great podcast. Uh, Zach Lowe had Malika Andrews and William Roden on. Uh, that was a great podcast. Talk about it. And then Howard Beck of the Full 48 and Bleacher Report for, for now, I guess, had on Jim Jackson. They had a great discussion on all of this. And so I just wanted to amplify those podcasts or endorse those because I don't think, at least in this particular setting, that we need people who look like Adam and I commenting on what happened last week. Um, it was just an incredible stand by the players, and I, I think we're both comfortable leaving it at that. But it was, you know, Jamal Murray's like so linked to that is because what made the interview so uncomfortable is like it felt like we were making a spectacle of of black pain. And so while I credit him for the interview that he gave, it was just it was just all sorts of moving and and perhaps in some, I don't know, like the wrong ways. I don't know if I'm wrong there, but the end to that series in general, uh, the Jazz almost winning on that Mike Conley shot, um, the way that Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray just seemed to go punch for punch, even though Mitchell didn't have that like best last game. It felt like he recognized what was happening when Gary Harris was in front of him and he was trying to get rid of the ball. Uh, there are, you know, I'm interested to see your thoughts on two things here would be, what do you give the, you know, just cause that series is done. Like it was epic. It was great. But like, how do you view this Nuggets Clipper series that's about to get underway? And I also don't know if you saw the reaction of Jamal Murray when he found out he had a play on Thursday um, after the post game on sports center, that was just, that was, that was a great moment. Um, but I'm wondering what type of chance you give the Nuggets there. And then maybe we should just get into a little bit while we'll try and do specific look aheads for each team's moving forward. Just like what this maybe means for the Jazz. Like, can they write off this as just, well, we didn't have Boyan Bogdanovich. Uh, you know, there are shots that we're going to hit that we wouldn't have. And Mike Conley missed the, the first two games, um, but they jumped out to a three to one series lead. So, how much does that actually matter? So, I'm curious on, on that. But first, like looking ahead to this Nuggets Clippers series, how do you think Denver matches up with LA? And do you give them a chance to come out of this series? I think that you just Jamal cringed. Murray interview was no one can see was, you. But yeah, you just yeah, I, I cringe. I did cringe. I think that Jamal Murray interview was pretty telling. That reaction specifically, because I, I think the Nuggets know that they're they're about to run into a rested buzzsaw, and this series took a lot out of them. It was an emotional, interrupted series. Every game towards the back end of the series was a battle. Jamal Murray played his heart out on so many different moments. Um, I think this team is emotionally drained. I think we saw the, 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 the level of fatigue that it had accrued throughout the series in Game 7 in particular. There was a stretch in the third quarter where it seemed like every shot really that both teams were taking was hitting the front of the rim, which is usually a sign of tired legs from a jump shooter. Uh, I I don't think the Nuggets match up particularly well 
with the Clippers even when they're totally ready to go. I, I have a feeling that Paul George is kind of uh, licking his chops, waiting to take advantage of the really shoddy perimeter defense that we've seen from the Denver Wings, and he's ready to uh, to get off the schneid, if you will. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I just Jokic uh, and Murray are are so talented that you you have to give them a shot. But this Clippers team is geared to stop players like Murray and to take advantage of everyone that Denver has, maybe with the exception of of Gary Harris, if he's at full strength. And and I don't think it's going to be a particularly long experience for Denver. I kind of agree with you that they don't match up well. I do think that Jokic could end up being a big mismatch in Denver's favor on the front line, just because I don't think that's a great matchup if you go with Trez at the five. And or Zubac, really. I mean, they Zubac has been, but that was the thing where I felt like it kind of takes away from the edge because he's just moved his feet so well in the playoffs coming out of the paint. And so like, can he neutralize any of what Jokic is doing out of there? I still think it's just a, this clear advantage, but even if you go to Jokic in the post, like I don't actually think that that's a bad matchup for Zubats there either. And so I'm not trying to say that that's not a clear win for Jokic there, but if you take what is in fact your best like mismatch, just because you know that the Clippers have the, the defensive firepower to throw at Jamal Murray, you know, whether it's going to be Patrick Beverly's coming back. So that's another thing Denver has to grapple with. Um, and if they want, they can put Paul George or Kawhi Leonard on Jamal Murray, if it comes to that. And so, so that you're, I'm not going to say you're going to take him out of the game, but then after that, it's, they match up well, if you want to play Michael Porter Jr. And then on the flip side at the other end, it's like, okay, so Jeremy Grant, I assume gets the Kawhi assignment. And so that's going to be, he's going to have his hands full and Kawhi has been playing out of this world as he tends to do in the playoffs. What is what are you doing with Paul George? Is that who Gary Harris is playing? Do you have to put Torrey Craig out there? Maybe because he's a little bit stronger, like for heavier minutes. Uh, that could end up being the mismatch. You just said Paul George was licking his chops, and that just might be, that might actually be why. So I just don't love this. I think Denver might be okay on offense, but at the same time, because of Jokic, but at the same time, it's like, I, they just the sheer depth of what the Clippers can do defensively on the perimeter when they have Patrick Beverly healthy and Marcus Morris is there makes me sort of uneasy to where I'm wondering if this, you know, what's the path to this going longer than five games. And I'm saying this as someone who picked the nuggets to win the title at the beginning of the season or before the season. (laughs) You have to stick with it now. Uh, But yeah, I think the other uncomfortable truth here is, is that as much as, the world seems to want to like rush to coronate Jamal Murray as one of the new superstars in the NBA. Like we might need to temper the expectations a little bit because as great as he played and as much of a rising star as he is, I mean, he's, he's in the third spot in NBA in NBA mass player power rankings at the moment. Like a lot of what he's doing isn't sustainable and the jazz weren't always playing great defense against him. I mean, in, in that seven game series he hit 54.8 percent of his pull-up shots and 57.1 percent of his pull-up threes and no player in nba history is capable of maintaining that level of efficiency on those difficult shots especially when the clippers are about to throw even better perimeter defenders at him so you know it's he's doing so much good but this wasn't like the scoring outburst that indicated he's always going to be this absolute flamethrower he he made a lot of difficult shots and kudos to him but 
it's going to come back to earth at some point. It was very much like an Icarian performance to some extent. Yeah, I mean, 40% on contested threes in that series, in addition to his 69 effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers. Just an absolutely wild performance. I do think, though, this does lend merit to Denver's immediate future because Jamal Murray has been kind of a roller coaster. He had his moments last playoffs, but there were also these vanishing acts. And the, the fact that those are fewer and further between, maybe he's just one of those players that becomes even more valuable in the postseason because they're not going to uh, you know, milk him in the way that they do in the playoffs during the regular season. Because I think the, the knock against him over the past three years has been like, statistically, when you look at his permanent production, there just hasn't been much change. It's basically been lateral. And so for someone you just gave a five-year max extension, that's not necessarily good enough. But if you can play, not necessarily like this in the playoffs, because this is not this is not a thing, but just the, the sentiment that he can, you know, kind of that like CJ McCollum factor where it's like, you know, maybe he's Portland's third best player when Yusuf Nurkic is healthy during the regular season, but he's their second best player in the playoffs. And maybe that's like the type of Jamal Murray factor there. That's absolutely huge for Denver. And you know, I don't want to write them out of the playoffs so so quickly, um, but if they lose to the Clippers, they do just have some interesting decisions to make because you have Jeremy Grant with the player option. Um, Paul Millsap's going to be a free agent, has not been good during the playoffs. And Torrey Craig's going to be a free agent. And then there's the whole, what would this team look like with another entrenched star on its roster? Like, what if Drew Holiday becomes available? What if Bradley Beal becomes available? Are you willing to give up? MPJ in in prospective deals for that. Maybe that's not something you even look at, um, or at least you, you don't feel obligated to look at if you put up a real fight against the Clippers. But if you drop in five games or just sort of six uninspiring games or, of course, get swept, like the time is now. Jamal Murray is 23. Jokic is 25. They're still young. They're under long-term deals. Like their window is now. And so you do have to sort of factor that in. And so I am sort of fascinated to see what happens this offseason? I default to Denver trying to be mo- like prioritizing mostly continuity. My guess would be Paul Millsap is not back at this point, but you bring back Jeremy Grant, you probably hold on to Porter Jr. and see if he can be your your swing piece, and that just seems like how they do things there. But it is sort of a worthwhile question to ask because Jokic is a top ten player right now, and if Jamal Murray is sort of on the come up, you know it's great that Michael Porter Jr. is as good as he is, but can you trust him to stay on the floor defensively against opposing starters as early as next year and then leading into the 2021 postseason. So their offseason is going to be super interesting, probably more interesting than it typically would be for a team that has its two best players under lock and key for so long. You've counted on restaurants. Now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. I can confirm this. I've been using DoorDash quite frequently throughout this pandemic that we're all trying to survive mostly whenever i've just been jonesing for some wings could be the middle of the week could be looking for a cheat night i just i need my wings sometimes large orders i'm talking like 50 wings or or more uh and i can eat those pretty much in in one sitting so doordash has been great whether i need uh, contactless delivery or even if i'm just placing a pickup order they make that super easy as well just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. But also, many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery too. That's what I've been doing, uh, using all these local, smaller businesses to, to get my chicken wing fix. DoorDash has them all. Love that, that they're all just located on there. And right now, get this, our listeners can get $5 off 
and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Yeah, I think a lot depends on who becomes available. And as we've seen in previous offseasons, it's so difficult to predict which star level players are going to want out of their current situation or are going to be actively shopped by their teams. If Bradley Beal is available because the Wizards see that they have a limited ceiling, even with John Wall back on the court, you give up Michael Porter Jr. in a heartbeat to go get him. If Devin Booker gets frustrated that Phoenix isn't making the playoffs and doesn't see that they're on an upward trajectory and demands a trade, then you give up Michael Porter Jr. in a heartbeat. If it's a lower caliber player, maybe you stick with it and move him at the trade deadline if necessary. But I, I don't, after what I, what we've seen in the playoffs, I, I struggle to believe that he's going to be a passable defender anytime soon. And he very clearly just like doesn't have an immense level of trust from the Denver coaching staff at this stage. And that's important because as you said, the window really is now. And maybe the window extends further than we typically see for those win now situations, but they are trying to actively win a championship at this very moment. And Porter as, as talented on offense as he is and as detrimental as he can be when he plays with too much of a green light and shows a complete lack of awareness on defense. Like he, he is not the ideal piece for that pursuit at this moment. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'd be curious though. So you say Bradley Beal that you would definitely do it. What if it's Drew Holiday? I would. Yeah, I would. I would include him in that tier as well. Interesting. I almost feel like because he's going to be a free agent. Not that Denver's going to have cap space. It. Well, I'm assuming he's going to decline his 2021 player option. And not that Denver's going to have cap space. I don't know if you need like also JJ Redick as part of that deal. If you can expand it with um, salary filler. Just I feel like. I would call Drew Holiday, as much as I love him, probably just the baseline um, because we did see sort, some of his limitations in the, the the bubble if he's going to be your primary uh, score or a primary scoring option. And he's he's in that top 25 conversation, but I think if you're going to give up on MPJ's upside at this point offensively, you probably need like that entrenched top 20 or top 18 guy. And I know it doesn't sound like a huge difference, but it, but it can be. That's a guy who's going to c- contend for all-NBA berth versus Drew Holiday who's just going to get that like residual – all-star love and so he might be the base i would consider it but he might be the absolute baseline and maybe it's a situation where you know you have to include you have to figure out how to get jj reddick uh too and so i think I'm, I'm ultimately with you there and then there's always i am curious to see if there's just like and maybe this is a nice segue into the jazz is there a player that just becomes available that we're just not seeing right now because you even try and think outside the box and it's still really hard uh, and then maybe that's how they enter the discussion and with the Jazz specifically, we know that player is not going to be Donovan Mitchell because he plans to sign a max extension with Utah per Chris Haynes. And now a lot of people are speculating about Rudy Gobert's future. And so I'm, I'm curious as to where you fall on this, as to whether you assign any real value to the behind the scenes tension that there was even before the whole coronavirus thing, uh, or if you think the Jazz are going to look at this loss in the playoffs, even though they blew the three to one lead and say, you know what, we didn't have Bojan Bogdanovich. Uh, this is the first like season that we actually kind of went all in on this roster because you went out and got Bogdanovich. You traded for Mike Conley. You also traded for Jordan Clarkson. You should have, unless you opt to resign Jordan Clarkson at an amount that's just ungodly, you should have the non-taxpayers mid-level exception to work with while being able to keep him. Is this a run it back situation? 
it is 100% a run it back situation. I don't really care if there's tension between Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert in the locker room or outside of the arena or whatever it may be. And we've seen both of them downplay how much tension there is following the the coronavirus situation. Um, I, I I think the, the tension that might have existed even before that because of playing styles and touches and all that is more salient. But either way, they don't play like a duo that has chemistry issues. Donovan Mitchell is more than willing to share the ball with Gobert. Gobert is more than willing to fill his role with aplomb. And because of that, I don't have any concerns about the 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 long-term future for that pairing so long as Utah opts to keep it together. Uh, I, I would fully run it back here. Because the the excuses that you mentioned for this first-round defeat are totally legitimate. Losing Boyan Bogdanovich, who was their second-leading scorer during the regular season, is a big deal. It completely alters the way that they run their offense. It forces so much more responsibility onto Mitchell's shoulders, which he capably handled. But it's still a difficult ask. Uh, and it would have been so much easier for him to thrive and somehow be even more efficient had Bogdanovich been there. Mike Conley struggled for a lot of the year, seemed to be putting it together before the hiatus, and then missed the beginning of the playoff series and played really well once he returned. Um, I don't think that he is in an imminent decline or anything, even if he's a point guard in his 30s. So I have I have faith in, in the upside of this core as currently constructed, and as you said, I, I would look to re-sign Jordan Clarkson at a reasonable number and then go get another veteran to, to add to the peripheral. Uh, but I, I, you don't need any substantial changes if you're this jazz team with with young in their prime stars. I would mostly agree with you. Uh, I would say I don't know that Rudy Gobert necessarily loves his role on offense. Might be the one aspect where I differ. And then his looming next contract, I do think, has to factor into the equation. Um, you're definitely not giving him the supermax. You're definitely not giving him the max, or at least you shouldn't, in my mind. You just can't do that with a big man anymore. Um, who's not? I don't even know. You know, people keep citing like a Kristaps Porzingis type. Like it's basically Anthony Davis and Carl Anthony Towns. Like that's the line now. Like that's the bar for if you're going to rebuild around a big man. And so that's not. I'm not even trying to take a shot at Rudy Gobert. If that's the money it's going to cost you, I guess you could investigate the market. But I would still tend to default to what you say because I don't know what you're going to get back for him in a trade. Because which teams are going to be tripping over themselves to give up a ton of equity for this player and then give him a ton of money in free agency? The other thing there, too, is when you're giving up that type of player, it's normally in a selling situation, and Donovan Mitchell is obviously too good for the Jazz to be in that position. Um, Their entire roster just skews toward the win now. I don't know that there's a win now, you you know, like return out there. And so you definitely keep Rico Bear because he's also very valuable to your team, and if you are worried about his free agency, I would just chance it. I know there'll be more cap space floating around in 2021, but I don't know how frothy the market is going to be for him uh, maybe there's a team out there that gives him this a max over four years and the, the jazz can decide whether they're willing to to go that high um but i would still be a little bit surprised if that happened and so you play the market game there and maybe try and capitalize on you know this one more season if you guys make it further in the playoffs maybe this becomes a non-issue he's happy there kind of recognizes his market value i will be interested to see where his next contract lands uh, but if i were the jazz if anything i'd probably gravitate towards doubling down where I'm not as confident in Mike Conley anymore as long-term as you might be. There's definitely better chemistry with Rudy Gobert there, uh, played better uh, in the bubble than he did during most of the regular season when he do- when he was battling not only the you know new-to-the-fold issues, but also hamstring issues. 
I might look at, you know, does OKC want Conley for Chris Paul? Like, that's a deal. Is that is there some framework there? Uh, that's the type of thing, if I'm the Jets, I'd still be looking at because I, I do think it's a knock against them for blowing a a 3-1 to one lead. It didn't help that Joe Ingles didn't shoot too well from three over the, the final three games. Ditto for, for Jordan Clarkson. Um, Mike Conley didn't shoot that well you know, inside the arc those, those few games. And so too much of the offensive burden fell on Mitchell's shoulders. But it's like you said, and as I alluded to before, if you have Bogdanovich, like that's a little bit different. Maybe he doesn't necessarily give you a ton of extra shot creation, but he's probably hitting threes at a higher clip than than you know really anybody else um, during that three-game stretch, um, except for you know Miang, who shot uh, over the final three games, forty-five point five percent from deep. So there, there are some holes there, and if you, you know, having a healthy Bogdanovich would help. But if you can sort of upgrade anywhere else, like I would look at an all-in move again. If it's Mike Conley for Chris Paul, and maybe need to sweeten that up a little bit, like that's something that I would consider. Or maybe the mid-level exception just goes further than I'm giving credit for right now. I don't think you burn it on a backup big, which a lot of people have said that they should do. It, you know, it's basically can you bring in an, another kind of shot creator in the backcourt or just another wing who might might feel that um, defensively, a guy who could maybe guard some of the more athletic wings in the defensive matchups. That's, you know, not something that they really had to grapple with in this series with the Nuggets. But if you went up against the Clippers, like you don't look at this roster and say, you know, we have a Kawhi and or Paul George guy that we feel comfortable with. No team does. You're like, you're not stopping. The, even when Paul George is bad, like he's still Paul George. Still, you know, a Royce O'Neal, a Joe Ingles, like that's just not going to make you feel great in those and so can your mid-level exception get you someone along those lines yeah ultimately for me it comes down to the stylistic shift that they underwent last offseason they they made a concerted effort to move away from the more outdated defense first more lumbering big strategy by moving away from ricky rubio in favor of mike conley by bringing in bogdanovich now these these moves were all intended to make utah more of an offense first team have more of a potent offensive upside, and we did not get to see it come to fruition because of the injuries. Uh, they still took a good Denver team to seven games in the first round, regardless of what happened in the first four versus the final three. It was still a seven-game series. It's disappointing that they did blow that 3-1 lead, but this was not the team that Utah was trying to create, and they still have access to the team they were trying to create without any significant downward swings expected. So yeah, I mean, I ultimately like if you can make a move like trading Mike Conley for Chris Paul, sure. Do that. If you can make other upgrades uh, around Mitchell and Gobert, fine, but there's, there's no need to blow it up. No, I'm totally with you there. I'm just more looking at it through the lens that you still have to reconcile competing with the Clippers right. and the, the Lakers, let's say. And so I do think that they need to be souped up a little bit compared to the roster that they actually have right now. Right. So let's stick in the Western Conference and move on to the Thunder and Rockets game seven. So I think that the two obvious questions here are, are one, who's going to win this game? And two, does the winner have any chance against the Lakers in the second round? I don't want to necessarily spend too much time on who's going to win just because it's by the time. People I have, listen I have to no idea. I have zero feel for this series just because you look at the Rockets. They've been the better team, I think, in net because – their, two of their three wins were blowouts, and then I believe, and I should have I should have double checked this, but they held leads inside two minutes to play of two of their three You're losses. Correct. And so, like, you could easily say this series it's not could be over; it should have been over already. Yeah, I mean, if Westbrook could throw an on target pass, it probably would be. And he is a good passer, and if he plays with any semblance of control, then you know, like 
let's draw the conclusion here. Right. And so it's more interesting to me to look at, you know, who would be the better matchup for the Lakers slash what does it mean for the team that loses? And so let's begin with the Rockets there. I think they're just clearly the better matchup for Los Angeles because they're going to take the Lakers out of their comfort zone more. Um, whereas Oklahoma City is going to sort of like coax LA into their comfort zone because they have Steven Adams. And that will not only be like fine with Anthony Davis playing minutes at the five, um, which he's matchup proof anyway, but they could get away probably with more dual big minutes there because if you want to put Anthony Davis on Danilo Gallinari, like that's absolutely fine. And, you know, a Dwight Howard and Steven Adams matchup or JaVale McGee, Steven Adams matchup, you know, you give the edge to Adams, but it's not like, you know, it's just not something that's going to scare the Lakers and which I think the Lakers are still at their best when Davis is at the five. So, I, I just feel like if you put Houston in there, it's just such a a different play style because you have the Lakers who do like to run with dual bigs for, you know, about half the game. And now all of a sudden, like, I don't think you get away with any minutes of having like JaVale McGee, Dwight Howard on the floor with Anthony Davis. And so that's just mega interesting. And because you have that three point variance with Houston where, you know, we've seen it hurt them, but it can also really help them. And the Lakers just don't necessarily have those high volume three point guys uh, who can knock those shots down consistently now more so than ever without Avery Bradley, that that becomes the more interesting series to me. There's the, you know, pulling at my heartstrings, seeing Chris Paul go up against LeBron after LeBron just went up against Melo. I totally want to see it. And I think you could maybe argue that uh, maybe the, the Thunder w- would still have a fighting chance in that series. But I'm curious to see what you think. I would say that Houston, um, while I'm not confident that they're going to make it out of the first round, I would say that they have the better chance of, of really unseating the Lakers than the Thunder would. I'm in total agreement. I, I think watching this this Thunder team, it seems like their floor and their ceiling are like one and the same. Like the Thunder are just the Thunder. And you know what you're going to get. It's going to be a lot of guard-heavy lineups. It's going to be a lot of Chris Paul, who is looking to score more than pass for the most part in the playoffs. And it, it's it's been working for the most part. Especially uh, in the fourth quarter. Especially in the fourth quarter. And he has been one of the NBA's best crunch time players all season long. Him and, him and Jokic basically blow away the field in those in those last-minute scenarios. He is slashing in crunch time in the playoffs, 50-50-100. Right. I right. know it's three games, but that's a, hell, that's a hell of a split. It's a hell of a line. And it's a, it's a typical Chris Paul playoffs line, too. But yeah, like I, I don't know. The Thunder would, would remain competitive against the Lakers in each of the four or five games, but I just don't think they have the ceiling to, to get past what is a superior outfit. Uh, the Rockets have the the high variance results that would at least give them a chance. You know, sometimes they're going to miss 97 threes in a row. Other times they're all going to find the net and they're going to win a game that is more high scoring than we ever would have expected. The matchups, as you mentioned, are more intriguing if Houston does win game game seven and forces the Lakers to deviate from from what they typically do because Mike D'Antoni coached teams do typically win the stylistic battle and force their opponents to adjust. I don't think they're as good a team as the Lakers. Um, the Lakers defense has been fantastic for a while and might be able to slow down James Harden to some extent. But yeah, it's it's just, it would be a far more interesting series because you never know whether Houston is going to shoot itself in or out of a game. And that's also what makes game seven so compelling in this first round series is that we have no idea. Like we know what they're going to do. We just don't know if the shots are going to fall and that's by design. You know, if it's, if it's a bad game, then all of a sudden we're talking about Mike D'Antoni going to coach in Indiana or somewhere else and whether the micro ball lineups can work 
And if the shots do fall, then they're in the second round with a puncher's chance against the Lakers. And D'Antoni might be safe, and they might run this back next season uh, with some improvements on the on the periphery. And who knows? Like, I'm I'm gonna pick the Rockets in Game Seven, and then to lose to the Lakers in like let's say six games, maybe, um, just because that was my my prediction at the start of the playoffs, and I haven't seen enough from the Thunder to convince me that it's wrong. Even though with this Houston team, it can go in any direction on on any given night. Sunday, Sunday, Sundays are coming back in the NFL. With NFLSundayTicket.tv, you can stream every live out-of-market NFL game every Sunday afternoon on your favorite devices. Plus, with Red Zone and DirecTV Fantasy Zone channels, never miss your favorite teams and favorite players. If you're like me, you can also actively avoid your favorite teams and favorite players if they happen to be the Jacksonville Jaguars. No matter where you live, NFLSundayTicket.tv is your key to the most glorious Sundays ever. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout to get 15% off your subscription. And visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use promo code BLUEWIRE. You could almost say the same about the Lakers, though, too. Just there's some, it, It's funny that I feel like we've learned almost nothing about this team over the course of the regular season that we didn't know coming in, and that's, is their supporting cast going to hit enough shots to be viable both when LeBron is on the court or off the court, and are they going to have that deficit of you know secondary ball handling? Is that going to hurt them? That's going to be something to look at in the series. I wouldn't pick. I I would I would pick them over either the Rockets or the Thunder. Though. Right, right. And so, looking at the the Rockets and Thunder, the fallout should either one of them lose. I actually, think it's fairly profound for both teams. Uh, so let's say the if the Thunder lose, now all of a sudden it's like all right, you guys were like this cool quaint like plucky team that wasn't necessarily supposed to be in the playoffs, but only because everyone thought you were going to blow it up. And now it's like, well, do you run it back and try and improve the roster, re-sign Gallo and keep going? It's a lot easier to make that decision, or it's a lot more likely that you do go that route if you make it into the second round and then put up a fight. If you lose in the first round, I think that's when we start to see like, all right, this team was cool, but it's really not deep enough to, to punch at the highest level and they're not going to get that much deeper over the offseason, at least with proven talent, because they will they could re-sign Gallo and maybe have the full non-taxpayer MLE to work with, and that's assuming they're willing to spend on all those things. And I don't know how much better that, that makes them. So if they lose this series, I think it's exponentially more likely that Chris Paul ends up starting next season on a different team. I have mixed feelings just because this team wasn't even supposed to be in this position in the first place. I think we all had the Thunder pegged as a lottery squad going into the season because we probably undersold Chris Paul's contributions and the impact that he's going to have on the development of guys like Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Dennis Schroeder. But the fact that they're here, I don't know if they lose, it should change that much. It ultimately comes down to what the Thunder can do this offseason and we just don't know because the market is so topsy-turvy and the draft is bad and you know all those other uh extenuating circumstances that they're going to have to deal with so if they can shop chris paul to the knicks and and get back an intriguing young talent and a draft pick then maybe they do that if they can move him for mike conley then and and remain competitive and in the playoff picture maybe they do that Maybe they do run it back, and maybe they go all in for a 2020-21 title push by moving one of their 417 first-round draft picks in the next few years for another star. Uh, The options for the Thunder and for general manager Sam Presti are seemingly limitless, and they can skew in so many different directions. 
that I just I, I think it all depends more on what the offseason makes available than what happens in game seven and their first round or second round series. That's fair. I the the market for Chris Paul is what could really turn it either way. Is like maybe the Knicks are there, but are they gonna be willing to offer more than, you know, their they have technically expiring contracts if they guarantee them and are you, you know, is Kevin Knox and a like a like I don't even like a second round pick? Like is that the compensation that you're after? Or they want to give up one of the Dallas picks uh in a Chris Paul trade? That seems like an overpay for a team that's not ready to compete. And then you're looking at Chris Paul and the Heat would be fantastic, especially with Goran Dragic entering free agency. But we know the Heat have designs on 2021 free agency. And so unless Giannis Attentacumpo ends up signing his Supermax this summer, which he he could, he might, he probably will, whatever you want to say, I might pull them out of the running. We mentioned the Jazz. I think one team that should make a play for him, I don't know if they would, uh, would be Phoenix. Uh, matching salary becomes tough after you, after you go from Kelly Oubre Jr., who I think is expendable just because of how well the lineup with Cam Johnson at the four played, and now you've kind of unlocked this Dario Saric at the four stuff. Are you willing to give up Rubio? In that deal, is that enough of an upgrade because he played so well for you too? That would be a team that might look at it, but I'm not sure how many teams are going to want to pay the balance of Paul's deal. Two years, $85.6 million, I believe it's at, um, particularly following the financial impact of the coronavirus pandemic. I think we overlook one important point too with this conversation, and it's just that Chris Paul looks happy in Oklahoma City. Like he is playing inspired basketball. He seems to have really connected with his teammates. We've seen it in post-game interviews as well, where he is more than willing to spend his time in front of the microphone propping up Dennis Schroeder after he makes a mistake or supporting the other young guys around him. We didn't see that in Houston. We didn't see that at the end of his time in Los Angeles. And if he doesn't want to leave, I'm not sure that the Thunder would want to deny that request. And I just I don't think that enough attention is spent on how he has felt in Oklahoma City, or at least seems to feel, since we don't have any direct insight into into his mentality. But you know, just based on the way he's playing and talking about his guys, the the fact that he's been so fully committed to a team that people didn't believe in, like I think that matters. It definitely matters. But if you're not going to bring Gallinari back, and you're looking at you know Schroeder and Adams are going to be free agents in 2021, right? Um, that's gonna he'll want to play for a team that's more competitive, and I'm not saying Oklahoma City would be completely steering out of it, but I, I do think he would ultimately prefer to play for a contender at this stage of his career. I I agree with that, but if he if he tells the front office like, hey, bring Gallo back on a one year balloon deal or something like that, like they should do that. They I they especially if they win Game Seven, I will full agreement with you. Um, the last team I would mention though for him, and it, I think it would depend fully on the market for Chris Paul. And I have no idea what that ends up being because he was, well, he's all NBA this year. Like he's, he's all second team. All NBA is where we both had him. Uh, but that money is so much. And we just don't know how teams are going to be feeling after losing the, the revenue specifically from um, not just missed games, but not having fans. And so is it where, you know, can you just get save money like on balance? Um, because then Milwaukee can get involved, where it's like if you just accept the poo-poo platter of Eric Bledsoe, Ilyasova, Lopez, who has a player option to DJ Wilson, like that gets you there. And then maybe Milwaukee can throw in like a future protected first round pick just because how does Oklahoma say feel about that Bledsoe deal? But then it's also like, oh, you're getting Bledsoe who might kind of keep us competitive as well. And his deal does stretch longer than Paul's. You can there are other permutations, but you would have to include George Hill or Brooke Lopez, which I think they'd be against. I wouldn't be against including including Brooke Lopez because I kind of have a suspicion that his deal is going to age 
pretty poorly, which is a um, thought for another podcast. And definitely not what looks. Splash Mountain is shooting the hell out of the ball uh, inside. inside Finally. The yeah. So Finally. But that would be the team. If I could pick the team, if I could just pick the team, Chris Paul to the Bucks. it's just so hard to get him there. Uh, but I do, I do think maybe I'm ascribing too much value to Game Seven, as you kind of so uh, kind of said. But if they end up losing, like I, I find it hard to believe that Chris Paul is still there. However, I also thought it was going to be hard for Chris Paul to finish the season in Oklahoma City in the first place, and look what happened. Chris Paul is tough to predict. That's what it ultimately comes down to. He and Jimmy Butler cut from the same cloth, where they are both grading and galvanizing. Is how yeah, I was going to say, like, man, like if if Chris Paul and Jimmy Butler are both playing in Miami, if you are a, a even relatively unmotivated teammate, you better get the hell out of there. <laughs> um, really, Dan, make a pick for Game Seven. I'm not letting you. I'm not letting you get away my without head says actually Rockets, making a pick. My head says Rockets. My heart says Thunder, which I think is a good segue into. And I'm, I picked the Thunder in the official prediction piece that I wrote. So you could. The, that's the receipt. Like if you're listening to this, and we're trying to keep this big picture, so it's not actually dated. If the Rockets lose, and this could even be true, should they fall to the Lakers in five games or something? I don't know that they. I don't think that they would. And I actually think there'll be a bunch of people that might pick them to win in seven. Still, like their situation is precarious i would say particularly again if they lose game seven because you're essentially a tax team next year because you when you look at um what you're going to pay between gordon harden westbrook covington and tucker you're at 119.6 million dollars next year that is going to be higher than than the salary cap now um it's going to bring you fairly close to luxury tax territory within 13 million and you'll basically be right there when you're looking, if you keep everyone else on your roster, uh, that's, I don't know how you then improve this team. And I like, I, I'm still trying to just struggle with the decision to, to, to move, uh, to make the trade for Russell Westbrook. And it's like, they unlocked a version of him by going super small. And I don't know if they would have gotten to this point where they played without a center. Should Chris Paul have still been here, but I keep thinking about it. And I'm like, just imagine this team playing small with Chris Paul instead of Westbrook. And but look, they have Westbrook, so I'm not here to relitigate that trade. But it's what can you do with, let's say, the mini mid level exception or even the full mid level exception, assuming Til- Tillman Fertitta is willing to spend it. And like, spoiler alert. <laughs> the but the other thing for me too is like all of a sudden that Eric Gordon extension, which just didn't feel great to begin with. Like he has been bad in the playoffs, and like he's provided some value and like resistance defensively. But now all of a sudden, if you can't count on him to shoot. We average from three, like you're at this point where it's, oh, we need to bring Austin Rivers back and, uh, you know, Ben McElmore can come back because you have him on the non-guaranteed salary, but you, know, you have house. This team will be missing something. And it's it's regardless of whether they fall in game seven um, or if they just lose to the Lakers. Again, if it's an actual fight, then it's like, oh, maybe they're onto something, just a little bit of, you know, polish on this team and it's fine. But like, because the Westbrook fit just feels still so imperfect, just because of the, like, you just can't count on his efficiency, and he's been turnover prone for much of, if not all, of his career. And Kevin O'Connor had a great piece for the ringer, where even he's outlining that, you know, James Harden historically has not shot well in the playoffs either, particularly in fourth quarters. Like, there needs, there's, there almost feels like there's a substantial piece missing here. Not just a small one, but a substantial one. And it's like, how do you go about addressing this roster? And I know the popular or trendy sentiment will be, well, they need to blow it up. And it's maybe not trade James Harden, but everybody else. How are you blowing up this roster? Because let me just throw some numbers at you here. Russell Westbrook is owed three years 
And assuming he picks up his player option, $132.6 million. While the last year of Eric Gordon's extension is non-guaranteed, so I'll just I'll throw it out the window, three years and a guaranteed $54.7 million. Robert Covington, eminently movable when he's basically two years, $25 million. P.J. Tucker, one year, $8 million. Uh, it'd be hysterical if, if they end up signing him to the extension here. But, you know, James Harden's on the same contract as, as Westbrook, basically, too. So he's owed similar money over the next three years. You obviously feel a lot better about that. There's no clear path to blowing up this team for me because I think two of the players that you would need to move for that to happen, I don't want to say are immovable, but would be tough to move without including sweeteners, which you do not really have anymore because you gave up so many vis-a-vis the, the Westbrook and also the Robert Covington trades. You know, I, I'm realizing it, and I don't know if it's due to my my generally sunny disposition or perpetual optimism that I'm generally team run it back. <laughs> I just want to see these 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 teams succeed in the manners that they want to. Um, but particularly with the Rockets, like you know, this was not the plan from the start. When they acquired Russell Westbrook, Clint Capella was still on the roster. They were still going to play a lot of small ball, but this was not the intended style. That they were going to play. It was a mid-season on-the-fly adjustment where they realized that, hey, we're not getting as much out of Westbrook as we could. Let's try to maximize him by shifting way further in this direct in this direction and then offloading Clint Capella and bringing in Robert Covington. So this is a makeshift experiment at the moment. And I want to see it play out over a longer time period where all the players are even more comfortable with their roles. They have an offseason to add minimum contract veterans who can shoot around these guys, who can play up on defense. You know, there there are those players who are going to be available and who are going to want to play for a team where they're afforded a lot of three-point opportunities, like a lot of three-point opportunities. So I especially because it is so hard to blow up this team for all the reasons that you mentioned. Like I, I am fully in favor of seeing with this vision fully playing out and not just as the result of a midseason shift where they were making do with their personnel and trying to adjust on the fly. I want, I want to see what they can do with this vision laid out and then moves more geared towards maximizing that vision. So I actually, I, I, I agree with you. I'll say that. But here's the first, I think. Here <laughs> might be. Here's where I might diverge. And so let's just look at the assuming that they are going to run it back, the absolute keepers on this roster Westbrook, Harden, Gordon, if only because you can't move them, uh, Rocco, PJ Tucker, Daniel House, Austin Rivers, even, even if he declines his player option, let's say they bring him back, you're going to have Ben McLemore. Um, I'm going to include him in the must keeps, just given how well he can shoot the ball. And let's it, look, they, the, I think what people are forgetting too is that they signed David Nwaba. And so they have the team option on him and he is like, he can be a really physical defender. And if he's shown that he can hit like 34 to 36% of his spot up threes in the past, that ends up being a huge get because he gives you um, against certain teams, he gives you defensive optionality across the one through four. So he's going to be there. And then, you know, at this point, it's even like you guys like really might need to bring Jeff Green back. So basically I'm asking with what you've seen on this roster, are they a Mo Harkless or a Paul Millsap away? from winning the title would be my question because I think Jay Crowder would be a great fit for this team. But my guess is even if the Rockets can tap into the full mid-level exception, my guess is that Jay Crowder costs more than that. I just feel like he'll be back to Miami on a balloon one or two year deal. 
Um, and they'll just figure out how to move him later if it's a long-term contract. And maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't. Jay Crowder will be the best of these three, I think. I just feel like he'll he prices himself a little bit out of uh, their range. Unless, again, the free agency market could be wonky. So if you can get a Mo Harkless, who would be a good fit. Um, if you can get a Paul Millsap, who I also, you know, people think of him as a big, which the Rockets aren't playing, but he's also only 6'7", uh, since the heights have been adjusted. So are they a Paul Millsap, as is, because he's 35? or Mo Harkless away from winning the title? You know, I, I think you could throw some other options in there too. Like they, they could pick up a, a Solomon Hill or a Courtney Lee or an each one more. You know, they're those lower level good shooters. Um, but yes, I, I, I think they are. Like because this team has that high variance, if they get hot, they're capable of beating anyone. And I just, I, I still think that if you have a system that is designed to not wear out Harden as much throughout the regular season. And if you can rely on Westbrook being effective and carrying a heavier load than he did for, for parts of this season, then you're going to keep Harden fresher for the playoffs. And I, I do think they have enough pieces. It's just I, they have to stay committed to this vision and not tap out midway through the process because it is a process. Yeah, I would just still hazard that there might be a different coach there next year just based off everything we've heard about D'Antoni. Uh, I, I think they have a lot riding on Game Seven and their performance against the Lakers. Should they win it, there's just I'm I'm just not as I, I understand and kind of agree with your sentiments. I'm just not as fully there, and I think it has to do with I've always just been lower on Russell Westbrook as the consensus. And had you given him a similar roster like this earlier in his career, just surround him with more shooting, like maybe he's more used to it. Maybe getting a training camp helps. So I don't doubt what you're saying. I just for me, it's just not as cut and dry but since we are you know coming up on the hour mark here i want to play the are you worried game let's start All right. let's start with the bucks and the heat are you worried about milwaukee after losing game one not even remotely and that will remain true even if they lose game two uh the heat are not, like, a, not even remotely even if they lose game two is a little even if no no right. even if they lose game two I, I'm, I'm okay with it um this heat team is deep it's so talented. It's so well coached. It is able to, you know, play it in multiple schemes and throw opponents off course. It is way more geared towards slowing down Giannis Antetokounmpo than an Orlando Magic team missing Aaron Gordon and Jonathan Isaac was. But this Bucks team is really deep and talented too, and I, I think that over the course of a series that Giannis is going to figure some more things out. We're already seeing Chris Middleton start to hit more shots. Brooke Lopez, as we mentioned earlier, is starting to hit his shots. The pieces are getting healthier. Um, I, I just, I believe in the talent of this Milwaukee Bucks team, even if it has to be tested first. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, for whatever reason, and I have, little analytical support for this because this Bucks squad has really struggled since coming to the bubble, uh, not just in the playoffs. Um, I just, I believe in the talent here. It might just be a gut feeling. Getting Eric Bledsoe back might help them. I think if there's a reason for concern, it's that Bam Adebayo wasn't even really the primary defender on Giannis and the Heat were throwing Jay Crowder, Jimmy Butler, Andre Godala at him. And it, it sort of worked. Um, it wasn't just, you know, Giannis needs to shoot better than four of twelve from the foul line. Like that, absolutely needs to happen. But they limited his looks at the rim, and they like the ball was just out of his hands more often. I think you know you mentioned Milwaukee's depth. I almost feel like it betrays them because like Mike Budenholzer it does needs, with Budenholzer as coach needs to stop. Like this is not you know 
like this is not Giannis played like almost 37 minutes um was removed because of foul trouble in the first half of of three fouls and I'm I was less against him like pulling Giannis um when he had the three fouls and a lot of other people because everyone's sentiment was it, that doesn't mean you're going to get your fourth. And like you could trust your best player to be smart in that situation, but then just play him the entire second half at that point. Uh, I'm, I don't know like if, if they're going to make the necessary adjustments to go after the heat. And like, I, I do think this is the time where like you really have to, I know a lot of people focused on Giannis not defending Jimmy Butler on the last uh, possession, but like that's not yeah, how. Can we just say that that's dumb too. Yeah, that's not he's how a big man defended. defender, and that's not how their system works at all. Right. He's if spent, that's your criticism, then actually watch a game. Statistically, too, he's spent most of the time on the number three option this year, just because, like you said, he's a big man defender, and there he's going to be better as the as the helper in those situations anyway. So that's not even the big thing. It's is he going to be like you know Kyle Korver? I get why he's there because you need the spacing, but like you know Kyle Korver was also. I think he was second, or no, he was fourth in shot attempts. But, like, Kyle Korver was just on the court. It was only for almost 17 minutes, and it felt, like, too long. He tries on defense, but he's a liability there. And, like, he didn't shoot super well. Like, three of seven from the arc is valuable, but four of nine from the floor overall. You probably need more out of George Hill. Marvin Williams gave you big minutes. They have so many options that I almost feel like it might be disingenuous to what they actually need to do, and that's throw out your your best five. And if you think that that includes George Hill instead of Eric Bledsoe, I'm absolutely fine with that. Just ride them. Like, this is not the time to, you know, play it conservative with with your rotation. So I'm not actually worried about them, but the Heat are, like, really a threat here. Goran Dragic is sleeping in fireproof pajamas right now. Um, they're always going to find shooting, even if you... They removed... Milwaukee neutralized Duncan Robinson, and, like, the Heat just still found shooting because they have Tyler Hero. Jay Crowder's going to hit his threes. Jimmy Butler apparently hits his threes now and takes them a little bit more deliberately. So I do think they're a worthwhile match. I just don't think the degree, like how thoroughly it feels like Milwaukee lost game one and whatever happens in game two, I just don't feel like that's how big of a threat that the Heat actually are. And so I would still pick Milwaukee to come out of the series. I think I had them in six if you need to push that to seven after seeing whatever we've seen. But if they lose game two or if they end up losing this series, and I'm talking about Milwaukee, like all hell is going to break loose. I don't expect Giannis to request a trade at that point. Um, I mean, he might even still sign a Supermax there, but like I feel a lot less confident about his future in Milwaukee beyond next season if they don't win this series. If for no other reason than avoiding all of the Giannis trade talk and speculation, I just I need them to win this series. But yeah, it's uh, you know, the Heat the Heat made a lot of tough shots in game one. And you have to make a lot of tough shots to beat this Milwaukee defense because if you a monster. Just an absolute if, monster. Yeah, if you execute well, then you're still getting a contested shot. Maybe it's from the spot you wanted, but it's still gonna be pretty heavily contested. Um and yeah, I, I just I think that if they do go down 0-2 in this series, which is a distinct possibility, that might be what forces Budenholzer to finally make the changes to his playoff rotation that he resisted for so long with the Atlanta Hawks and is now resisting for so long with the Bucks. So you, if anything, like it could be good for their long-term outlook if they do lose game two. You would think, but I don't trust him that much. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. He's a fantastic coach who needs someone to be like, hey, hey, Mike, like let's let's change it up a little bit here. Are you worried about the Toronto Raptors? after they fall behind 2-0 to the Boston Celtics? On the on the like 1-10 to 10 scale of worry, with 10 being like way worried, 
I'm probably at about a six. Um, and it's more of a testament to how good Boston is than anything Toronto is doing wrong. They're going to eventually hit more shots. You know, Fred Van Vliet has struggled with his with his touch in this second round series. We've seen Pascal Siakam be a bit overwhelmed by all the bodies that are being thrown at him. Um, but this this Celtics team is is excellent, and and that's what they do make opponents feel that that pressure from all levels, uh, from everywhere. Uh, Jason Tatum has fully ascended into this superstar level. Jalen Brown is fantastic. Kemba Walker is starting to feel it, even if his knee is bothering him a little bit still. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a little worried about the Raptors. I'm not panicking because this team has such good coaching and so many good pieces and so much usable depth. Um, but they definitely they're they're allowed to start feeling a little concerned. They they in no way need to hit the red panic button, but they can have removed the glass cover if they feel it's necessary. Yeah, the look. I think what you could probably point to as almost encouraging is that they're eight of thirty four through three uh, through two games on wide open threes, and that's twenty three point five percent. They will or should shoot better than that. But where I think it really does actually get a little bit unsettling is you look at the the length and size of having Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Marcus Smart, and then that could really gum up what Fred Van Fleet and Kyle Lowry are going to do best, and that puts so much more pressure on Pascal Siakam to create. And while he still has that ceiling as the primary creator, he's just not there yet. And so Boston's defense, I don't think I gave them enough credit for how they can handle the individual matchups here. That being said, uh, Toronto probably isn't counting on Marcus Smart to go absolutely bonkers from three against them. He had five three-pointers in game two in a span of three minutes in the fourth quarter. Like, that's just not something that... One of which was an and one. Yes. So, uh, like, that, that stuff maybe it'll normalize. Perhaps it's because we're dealing with small sample sizes. There's a chance that it doesn't. Um, and if Marcus Gasol is not in foul trouble in game two, like, maybe the outcome is different there. So I'm I'm not in full-blown panic mode yet i am wondering if you know and i'm sure nick nurse will explore every possibility because if anything what you mentioned about bud is like what nick nurse will actually do is he's going to use the 2-0 deficit as an excuse to to get weird or go off the grain and you know are we going to see like more siakam at the five with og at the four is that something that like we might get a little bit more of in in these subsequent games i picked Toronto to win this series in seven i won't back off of it i i think you know there's high variance to the shots that Boston is is taking, uh, but at the same time, with the way that Jalen uh, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum's been able to get to the rim um, because of the pressure that they're putting on him on the perimeter, like that's also making me like a little bit uneasy with my initial prediction. I think my big lesson so far is that Boston is better suited to beat Toronto than I really gave them credit for. So hats off to the Celtics and Kemba Walker is just wow. Like Kemba, Kemba Walker is just honestly wow. At the same time, I'm not there to hit the panic button on Toronto yet and look you could say well obviously they lose game three like that's when you go there you're down 3-0 but their their players while boston's defense can just be like pesky for what toronto is trying to do um you know if they're going to cut off transition opportunities if they're not going to allow and then you're in this point where you have to rely on lowry and siakam and fleet to put pressure on the rim in the half court which isn't really their games to begin with and then against boston's defense specifically it might not fly i still just expect those guys are, are going to to shoot better. I mean, Kyle Lowry is is two of twelve from three through two games. That's six point three percent, eight point three percent. I think um, I should just look at the eight point three percent. And I, I'm, as I said before, they miss so many of their wide open threes. And so, 
that stuff to me for Toronto might normalize. It's the question of like, then what happens at the other end? Like, is Boston going to come down a little bit? Um, I honestly don't know. I'd expect Marcus Smart to, uh, but Jason Tatum, you know, like he's really just he's adapted to what Toronto's defense is doing to him. And I'm not necessarily sure that that goes away. This still feels like a series. That's not going to be, you know, two to, Oh, you suggest like, Oh, maybe this ends in five somehow, or I still feel like this is one that's, that's going to go the distance. And so I'm not in pat. I'd be more concerned. I'll frame it this way. I'm more concerned about Milwaukee against Miami than I am Toronto against Boston. Yeah. Um, the biggest tidbit of information that pushes me to change my prediction is that Boston actually won a playoff game that was officiated by Tony Brothers, which historically just like doesn't happen. They actually managed to shoot 38 free throws in game two with Tony Brothers as the leader referee, which again just doesn't happen historically for the Celtics. Um, so it might just be their time. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with my original prediction of, of Raptors in, in six or seven. I'm, I'm Probably leaning more towards the seven at this point because this, <laughs> this Boston team is really good. Um, I'm Look, if Raptors win in six, oh my god, another force just going to rattle off another four straight victories after falling they down. They very hard. well could. They very well could. I'm, I am more worried about Toronto than Milwaukee. Uh, again, more because of the Celtics than anything else. Also, but two I, I is, do as we're recording this, two zip is worse than one zip. That as well. <laughs> that, that's a fair point. Um, but yeah, it's just I, I I just expect some regression in different directions. You know, I, as good as Boston's defense is, Toronto has a bunch of shot makers and can get offense from so many places that I just don't expect them to continue shooting thirty eight point five percent from the field and twenty six point three percent from three point range. And conversely, I don't expect Boston to continue to hit forty one point six percent of its threes against a really good Toronto defense. So. The game two was so close; it could have gone either way. Maybe it could have gone a different way had you know Nick Nurse gotten his way on the Marcus Smart foul slash out of bounds play on Pascal Siakam's drive. Um, but yeah, I just I, I look at those numbers, I look at the way these teams play, and I'm I'm not ready to to throw in the towel for Toronto whatsoever. Do you have anything else that you need to get off your chest for our listeners? Not really. That'll do it for us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, please, please, pretty please, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcasts. Um, Subscribing and downloading every episode helps us out a ton. Even if you're not using iTunes, though, we would kindly ask that you go to iTunes, search Hardwood Knox, throw us a five-star rating, and write a review as well. That stuff helps us out more than we can describe. So we would really appreciate it if you... If you did that, if you have done all that, word of mouth helps. Retweeting our promotions, um, telling your friends, families, acquaintances on social media, um, stealing family members' phones and subscribing them to the Hardwood Knox podcast by force. They will thank you later. We kind of sort of a little bit promise. Until next time, though, we leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, Robert Williams III, just, just because that was Adams, one of favorite players entering the playoffs. And don't think he's been as much of a factor as, as Adam was, was hoping he would be. So shout out to Time Lord. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, 
division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.